Welcome to the IPv6 Buzz podcast, where we dare to dive into the 128-bit Azure Space wormhole. Quick reminder, there's sponsorship opportunities available for IPv6 Buzz and all the other Packet Pusher podcast shows. So if you're interested, go to packetpushers.net slash sponsorship and you can get all the details. And if you've got something cool working with v6, we definitely want to hear about it and we don't want to hear from you. So hey, reach out, let us know. I'm Ed Horley with my co-host Tom Coffeen. Scott Hogue is, is off this week, but uh, hey, we're going to be jumping in and talking about ITF 116 and all of the IPv6 things with our guest, Nick Baraglio. So hey, welcome, Nick. <laughs> welcome back. Maybe we'll do this as a recurring show, just all the ITF updates and everything else. I'm up um, for that. <laughs> cool. Well, let's 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 talk about it. Let's talk about uh, um, ITF one sixteen was in was in Japan, right? I yes, think. indeed. Yeah. So, and I think you got to go, right? So that's sort of cool. Did um, my first time ever. That's the furthest away from home I've ever been. <laughs> well, why don't you give us a little bit of a summary or an update on um, what specific V six items were sort of chatted about? I mean, I know they talk about a ton of things at, at the ITF uh, meeting wise overall, but we're obviously where the, the V6 buzz, so we want to hear about the V6E things that, that happened. Yeah, so um, the one specifically that, that I was focusing on, so I, you know, I sat in on um, V6 Ops and V6 Man, so for those that don't, aren't familiar with how the IETF works, and again, I'm still only a couple of years into being involved, so you know, take, take what I say with a grain of salt, but um, you know, the, the V6 ops working group is supposed to work on operational uh, issues, you know, in, with regard to like standardization and things like that. And the V6 man is for like um, maintenance uh, changes to existing things. Um, I primarily, you know, am active in the ops working group. Um, that tends to be where a lot of the new things come in and, and get discussed um the 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 two biggest things that I, you know i'm familiar with that we you know that we talked through were a draft that i was involved in that um sort of lays out the uh, all of the options for uh multi-homing ipv6 uh and this is you know this is a well-traveled uh sort of hot topic right there's there's a lot of issues that are involved with this and 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 there's not really one great place that is a you know, a, a, an official repository of here's all your options and here's the pros and cons, right? That's sort of sanctioned. And so we wrote a draft, a uh, handful of us, uh, and uh, published that with, you know, these are the things that are available today if you want a multi-home IPv6. And it really highlights the extreme poverty of options in that space. I don't know what I mean, you speak of. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, there just isn't, you know, BGP is really the only sane option if you subscribe you know religiously to the end-to-end principle which you know right. there's a very strong feeling in within that uh, organization on on preserving that so you know at that point you've got you've got bgp is the only one that's really um you know operationally supportable in my opinion um so we we, we wrote that draft up and i presented on it um and then the other one that that got a lot of discussion was uh, with regards to how hosts are addressed in very large um, deployments. So like think of something like a um, like a huge wireless deployment where you may have <clears throat> resource constraints on like neighbor tables and things like that. Um, so there was a draft that proposed uh, was written by some folks at Google 
that proposed uh, making an option and um, also a new flag that yeah, would P, indicate, P that, yeah, the P flag that now, so that's in V6 man, that's where it sort of, you know, you have to understand the difference between the two groups, but um, the, uh, the, the draft lays out um, essentially assigning a slash 64 to a host um, via prefix delegation, if it requests it and is capable of using it. Um, now that does a number of things and it's, it's, this is already a standard, right. For mobile devices. Like this has been around forever for yep. mobile devices for the reasons of tethering. I, I don't remember the exact RFC. It's, that one actually got so, like a lot of debate around that one, but not for the reasons that you probably think, um, a lot of the, a lot of the discussion and a lot of the heated debate has been around whether it should be a slash 64 or not. Um, which to me is a sort of a strange argument to have, but I sit pretty firmly in the, you know, hosts are on slash 64s, you know, camp. Well, what are the, regard. what are the alternatives that, that someone is proposing other than a 64? Um, 96 is mm. the one that keeps coming up. Um, and 80, so mm -hmm. 80 and 96, and, you know, they're, you know, they've brought up privacy concerns and things like that, which, you know, I, if you go and look at the mailing list, you can see, you know, I detailed out, like, here are what I think are the sort of the, the items under debate for this draft. And the big one is the security one, which, you know, I've been a security guy in the past, and I understand, you know, the, the um, likelihood. So everything to me is risk likelihood. And, you know, the, the, some of the concerns that are being brought up, I think are very edge case in my opinion, especially from what I've seen from, you know, sensors that I've been in charge of managing or that I have had access to, or even just proximity to a, you know, a, a highly functional uh, security team. Like it's all really like fringe stuff uh, in my opinion. Um, and to me, 64 is the gold standard and I don't see, I see that anything other than that is really unnecessary complexity that doesn't need to be introduced. That's my opinion. More, more nerd knobs, right? I mean, I don't really, I, you know, it, it all keeps coming back to like, well, you know, there's these privacy things and you're saying that we have to use Slack and, you know, it's like nobody's saying you have to do anything. Um, you know, you, the the reason you would use a 64 is because you if you would want your let's say a use case would be you know i have this giant broadcast wireless network and i have a whole bunch of chromebooks on it mm -hmm. and chrome os uses containerization you know fairly extensively for things and you know it's a, it's a minimum number of addresses that's you know not that's a surprisingly high for just a chromebook that's running and, you know, the more things you're running inside of it, let's say you're doing, you know, Linux on it and some other, you know, whatever other things you are that each are going to grab their own IPv6 address. You're going to you're going to quickly realize, like, my neighbor table is gigantic and mm -hmm. that can become just problematic. Route. So just route a 64 to the host, let it assign as many addresses as it wants, and then it will yep. all route through there and you're fine. Right. Yep. And the, and the idea with a 64 is that. um then you can just use Slack and it's all, you know, self-contained inside the device, right? Mm -hmm. Same thing you I, do, you know, containerization is another, you know, like data centers is another reason that this would potentially be useful. Right. 
yeah, scale out Kubernetes clusters or whatever else. Exactly. I, yeah. Although they already have a, a method for doing that, you know, they don't necessarily need the RFC for for moving forward with that because they've already sort of solved that problem space. But yeah, that's but it true. makes sense. It makes sense to sort of standardize it so at least they'd be like, okay, well, we can support that too, right? So yeah, I, but I do, I do see that you know the, and again, this is the, another thing that is coming up is that you know, well. I'm not going to run my wireless network this way. Well, okay, that's fine. Like you don't need to, unless you're running right. at like a massive scale, you really kind of don't have a reason to, unless like you come up with a reason to, it's like, no one's saying that this is like the only way to do things. They're just saying like, this is another way to do things that might benefit you in this particular use case. Well, that, and that brings up something related to the ITF in general that I think causes us to gnash our teeth at times and that the, the lack of operational use cases for which the solutions are being proposed. And I, and I yeah. wonder like, you know, and I, it, for this, this is what you're describing sort of for me, at least feels like it falls into that camp where, you know, here's a potential solution for something that operationally no one has really decided to do. Um, is do you feel like there's some of that disconnect still going on, or or is are there more folks showing up that you know that are, are willing to show like here's what we're doing operationally, and here's how this solution will help us get you know get there faster, or get there in a better way. I think that in in the last probably two years, I've started to see more of that. Um, you know, and some of that is you know I tend to be fairly pragmatic with things like that, like. I learn by doing, and I also, you know, want to understand like, what is everybody else doing? Like, I don't want to do anything in a vacuum. Right. So if I've got an idea, I'm happy to shop it around. And if somebody tells me that's a stupid idea, okay, fine. Right. Let me talk to four other people and see if they all think it's not great. If they all say it's not great, it's probably not great. Right. But like, so, you know, I tend to ask, Hey, has anybody seen this or, you know, what use case would this fill for for you. Um, and I think there's there's not as much of that within the IETF as I think there should be, especially in the operational groups. Right. And, you know, some of that is just, you know, it's it's a volunteer organization, you know, and maybe people don't have, you know, maybe people that are doing the things don't have the time to wade through the politics and, you know, the, you know, the the pedantry that sometimes comes up. Um, mm -hmm. you know, in, in the discussions, but you know, the more, the more of that you can get in there, the better off you're going to, you know, everybody is going to be long-term. So, you know, that's something I, that's a, that's a role I like. I enjoy playing that role. Right. So, you know, that's something that I try to do. And I have seen a little more of that in the, you know, the more I've been participating, I'm not saying I'm, I'm causing any of that. I'm just saying I'm now, I'm now participating more. So I'm seeing more of it. I, I do agree. There's, there's a bit of, um, you know, this is a problem that I have to solve and, um, this solves my problem. It would be great if it solved somebody else's too. There is some of that. And I think a big part of that is that it's a resource thing. Like I said, of, you know, vendors have the time and the sort of, uh, you know, it behooves them to send their people to sort of push their agendas on how they want to do things. Same thing with very, very large organizations, cloud providers and and, uh, and such, yeah. you know, it makes sense for them to do that. But like, where does that leave people like, you know, governments and universities and, you know, other sort of mid-sized and, and other large entities that maybe don't have the same reasons to do the things, 
Yeah. Well, and, and also like the large enterprises, I, I don't, they've always been sort of historically underrepresented. Yeah. Oh, for sure. And, yep. you know, and, and I think I, you hear their voice through vendors sometimes because they're the ones that are, you know, placing the orders, you know, for, for big pallets full of gear and software and, and that, that has some impact, but it, but it's just sort of indirectly felt. And I, and I think whenever, whenever I sort of dip my toe into what's going on with the ITF, I always sort of come away thinking, wow, there just really isn't a whole lot of like large enterprise representation. I think it's not just V6. Um, you know, I participate in some of the segment routing groups um, to a significantly lower capacity, but um, you know, I definitely pay attention to those, you know, the PC working group and, you know, some of the SRV6 stuff and traffic engineering working group and, and it's, it's carriers, it's vendors and the occasional like practitioner, but you know, that I think there needs to be more of the large enterprise people. They shouldn't be relying on the vendors to represent their interests. That I have, a very, I have a very firm opinion. You know, I buy from vendors. I respect the vendors that we use. Um, you know, I've rarely had a poor experience uh, in you know in in relaying my needs and requirements and desires. Although I, you know, it's pretty well known that I'm fairly assertive, so maybe that's why. But like I, I'm very much trust but verify type of personality. So if I tell vendor, I need this represented, I want to know that they're actually doing, you know, asking for the things that I think are important or else I'll have to do it myself. Right. Which yeah. I'm willing to do. Yeah. Well, and having been at a vendor and recognizing that, you know, it's, it's always the same scenario where you have a, a you know, very, you'll have a very large customer and they want feature X and, and they've got the dollars to sort of put behind that request and that feature X gets implemented. And meanwhile, yep. you know, uh, <laughs> any number of other customers are like, well, that didn't really help us at all. We can't really use it. It's not something that's on our radar. And so, yeah, I think your point is well taken that, uh, it, it's probably not a good idea um, to, to trust that your vendors are, are advocating for what you need to see operationally uh, with IPv6 or anything else at, at the ITF. Uh, you know, so uh, I guess I guess I, I shouldn't be surprised that there there still you know isn't isn't that kind of large enterprise representation. That's a it's been a tough nut to crack over the years, and I, I hope you know I've always sort of hope springs eternal that 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 the large enterprises will show up and and make their presence felt like what they need operationally with IPv6. There's there's another issue <laughs> of that that you know at the very best you're you're relying on a game of telephone. Yeah. Right. I tell vendor, vendor, you know, salesperson or SE talks to the product manager who then talks to whoever in their organization is working on whatever standards body, you know, is involved. And so you've already, you've got a minimum of three different people that may be not understanding or even, you know, inadvertently changing the request. Yeah. Right. And that's, you know, and that's fairly problematic. Like a good example, you know, is years ago, um, we had a vendor and I wanted them to implement, this was a, a prior job that I had. I wanted them to implement BGP flow spec because we had a handful of their um, uh, pieces of equipment and the other gear we had did BGP flow spec, but they did not. And I said, I need you to implement BGP flow spec. Let's make this an official feature request. And, you know, two weeks later, I, got a message back from the 
product manager via my SE is like, they want to know if you want them to implement the entire standard or just parts of it. I was like, well, why would I want just parts of it? Like if you're going <laughs> to implement the standard, do the whole, like what, what benefit is there of doing part of it? And so like just those kind of strange disconnects, you know, I can't, you know, I can't trust that that won't happen and me not know about it. They make the decision behind the scene and, and don't tell you that they didn't implement the whole thing is, is sort of the point, right? Well, I mean, you're in a rare position that you even get to ask and someone will do something. Uh, that I'm sure there's plenty of other folks who have desires for wanting things, but just simply get ignored. <laughs> right. So, yeah. so consider that a leg up. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. That, I mean, that's a very valid point. Well, let's I, let's steer it back a little bit topic-wise because one of the drafts that you've been working on is is the multi-homing issue, and and I wanted to sort of give you a little bit of time to sort of walk us through a little bit around what's going on with multi-homing, where the thought process is, and why your why your draft is 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 a thing, right? In terms of mm-hmm. like why why you sort of wanted to put things down on paper um, and and have the IETF actually say like yes, this makes sense to sort of get out there. Yeah. So the way that I, my brain works is that, that I like to try to understand all the options I have available so that when I talk about them, it's easier for me or, you know, I'm quote air quoting here that, you know, whoever me is in this, in this instance to say, here's all the things that I, that, that, you know, that exist right now. I understand what all of these are. I probably have a reasonable understanding of the technical details and the reasonings behind why they are the way they are. And here's what it's lacking. And, you know, I did in the 90s, I did this. uh, I went out and actually purposely got an MCSE so that I could say, I'm not going to use Windows. And it's not because I don't know it. I'm going to use Linux or BSD. And by the way, I went through this whole certification process. So I actually understand what I'm doing with this. And here are the reasons I don't want to use it. Right. So that, that tends to be how I think. Um, and it, in, in highlighting a lot of the multi-homing uh, mechanisms that are available within the, you know, the, within the grasp for, you know, let's say a regular end user or even a power user for V6. Um, it really very acutely points out like there is some stuff missing here like this doesn't scale the way that it needs to in 2023 or in 2015 or you know for it you know it just it, the options are very limited and they're all almost too technical like my mom wouldn't be able to do it like you know it's it's too hard for a normal non-technical user to do v6 multi-homing with any type of supportability. Um, and that was that was one of my goals was not not just to point that out because I thought that was the case, but I wanted to be sure that that was the case. So, you know, the other people that are writing this draft are all very, very smart. They know their stuff inside and out. And, they're you know, we're working together to sort of just put these things down on paper. And in in reading their pieces, I'm educating myself, right? Like, OK, mm-hmm. that's an option where would I use that? Probably nowhere. Right. That kind of thing. So, um, what, I guess one of the challenges is because obviously from a multi-home perspective, let's, let's talk through a little bit of the structural details here, if if that's okay, which is really that if, if you have PI space, if you have provider independent space and you're allocating it out to a small branch site or something like that, and you want to have multiple service providers upstream, 
you basically have to do BGP to advertise your provider assigned uh, provider independent address space into them, which means minimum of a 48, right? Probably mm-hmm. hopefully you're doing like a 44 or 40, but you know, 48 minimum. And then, and then you're going to be doing BGP with them, which means you have distributed AS, you need to understand how to, you know, not be transit, do all those things. Right. And then peer with multiple, multiple providers in order to get that site to basically come up on the network. Right. Right. Uh, your other, your other option is to build an SD WAN overlay and route everything back to your home office and look like, you know, old school, you know, 1999, right. Sort of like yep. we tunnel everything back to the corporate office. So those are the, so the, two option sets for running there. And then if you have a different configuration, which is I'm running this small remote branch site location, I've got two service providers, one service provider hands me their PA, you know, provider assigned address block. Let's say they assign a 48 for you. It's in service provider A, service provider B hands you a 48. Now you have two addresses that you basically have to address everything inside your network and hope that, you know, RFC 67, 24 does the right thing, source address destination selection process, and you're going to route traffic out and you have no control then over what the host operating system is doing in terms of selecting stuff to get to an end destination. Is that, is that sort of a good summary about where things are at? Yeah, there's so you've highlighted the two best case scenarios. Um, right. The, uh, the likely good. scenario that you're going to find, like, so let's use, the, you know, a pretty common example that, uh, you know, that I've seen a lot, you know, especially in the last handful of years is let's say you've got somebody that's uh, working from home that their job, you you know, basically requires them to have constant and stable internet access. They might be able to get two service providers where they live. Like, let's say, for example, I'll use myself as an example because I know it the best, right? I've got, Mm -hmm. um, I've got a one gig fiber uh, provider that um, gives me a slash 56, right? It's DHCP prefix delegated. It's reasonably stable. I have no real reason to have a backup because my fiber is very consistent and stable. However, in the off chance that, you know, I have a a break, I, you know, I work from home. So um, I have, you know, my one option is I could do tethering right on my cell phone, which I don't want to do that. Right. If I don't want to, I want it to be automatic. Right. So I get a cable modem. Right. I have access to, uh, you know, large national footprint cable provider. So I buy the, you know, the bare minimum service that I can from them. They give me a slash 60. Right. Mm -hmm. So right away, you see the problems already mounting. Like I have uh, two address blocks that do not match in size. Right. So right away, that rules out anyone that does not understand. you know, what they need to do to do prefix translation on two prefixes that are not the same size, which is probably, I would say 99.9% of people. That's, that's sort of the most common scenario that I've seen. So what do you, what, what are your options at that point? You can sit down and you can figure out, you can, you can, you can say, I'm going to do, I'm going to number out of this prefix space and hope that it is um, consistent enough that it isn't going to change. Right. And it's prefix delegation. So there is a chance that that's going to rotate out at some point and you'll get a completely different set of um, addresses on your 56 or your 60. Um, So you kind of have to expect that, which already that, so that's problematic, right? So then you have to manually renumber everything, even if you've got your NPTV6 prefix delegation stuff all set up. 
um, which by the way is pretty much absent in almost in, in I would say most like reasonable CPs that, uh, you know, that, a, that, a, that someone's going to have at their house. Right. I happen to have something that will do it, but I'm also, you know, I've been a network engineer for 25 years. So, you know, I'm, I'm not the, I'm the exception and not the rule. Then you have to uh, make sure that all of that NPT stuff is set up correctly, that your internal prefixes aren't changing out from out from under you because you've, you know, you've written your rules to, to, take into account the the prefix that you've been delegated and you've decided to use. So yeah, it's brittle, right? Okay. So let's say you don't want to use the prefixes that a, you know, a provider has given you, you want to use ULA. Well, right away, ULA problems, right? Those are, we've talked about these before. There's an ITF draft that we can go into later if you want to, that sort of lays out the operational headaches involved with using ULA and, and RFC 6724 and address selection. Like, no regular user is going to even understand what any of that means. Right. So right. it's unsupportable yeah. in my opinion, a technical person. Sure. Maybe, maybe they can get it to work with 80% of their stuff, but you know, not their embedded gear or whatever. So that's a, you know, that's an untenable solution. Then you've got NAT 66, which, you know, the IETF is going to like shoot fire out of their eyes and mouth. Anytime you bring that up, like they are very against that even being mentioned in drafts um hmm. actually they don't even like in you know the one of the comments i got on our draft was that they did not like nptv6 being mentioned in the draft as a viable operational model because even though it is an rfc you know it has a number and everything it's been around for 11 years um it's marked as experimental hmm. so this is this was all new to me too, right? Um, is like okay, I didn't I did not even consider that. So even though you can buy it in vendor gear, it's deployed all over the place, you know. It's it's still an experimental RFC. So there was a, a comment that, well, that's experimental, so we don't know if it should be in there as a viable solution. And I, which I disagreed with, and that's fine. And we can you know go through the motions of trying to fix that too. But at that point. You know, you can you can really see the complexities that are involved in multi-homing IPv6 when you are a power user or just someone that needs um, consistent connectivity with IPv6. Um, well, let's let's do a quick com compare and contrast because the reality is, is we're talking about this, but what can you do in V4 that just really isn't feasible in the same way in V6? I guess that's the easy way to frame it, right? So what's yes. Um, so in V4, this is trivial because everyone uses RFC 1918 space at their small business or their home or their branch office or probably even their giant enterprise, right? RFC 1918 space is consistent. It, it, it never changes, right? It's whatever you decide it's going to be. It's completely up to the end user. That's why, that's why enterprises love it, right? They have total control over it and it's, you know, it's not unlimited, but like for Anyone that isn't enormous, it is, you know, very limit free, right? They can use big all it's the big enough. <laughs> it's big enough, right? Right. And so they never have to change anything. They can go and they can change their upstream providers at will anytime they want. They can have 10 of them. They can have one of them. It doesn't matter, um, especially if they're numbering internally as, you know, 1918 or uh, you know, 50, whatever the CGN space is.
the 100.64 space. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you don't really have that. There is no option for that in IPv6. The closest thing you have is ULA, which again, which we've discussed is, you know, kind of a crap sandwich, right? It's, <laughs> it's not really great for operational use in a lot for, you know, for in this case, now you'll get people that'll scream and, you know, hair on fire. They'll, oh, I've made this work, blah, blah, blah. Sure. Right. You're highly technical. I bet you can make it work. Good for you. You know, here's a cookie. But for most people, it is an unsupportable solution. And, and that's where the limit is. I think there's no great way to do that type of consistent internal addressing with V6 that maps to address translation like NAT 4.4. Right. And NAT 4.4 has the other advantage of if you've got multiple service providers in your home with a CPE device, right? Those CPE devices can change out their front side. IPv4 address with no impact on the internal portion of the network. Those addresses don't change. They simply just NAT translate out to whatever is going to be used that the service provider gave you. You really don't care at that point. Uh, SD-WAN leverages the same set of of, of behaviors, right? And so you've got a very stable internal address space that you run, you administer, and you can control. And uh, and it has no dependency on that global unicast nature of, of the V4 address. And so there's a decoupling that goes on there versus with V6, we're tightly coupled from a global unicast basis unless we use something like network address translation. So if, if we do NAT66, which uh, as you mentioned, everyone in the ITF wants to you know light their hair on fire about, or you use MPTV6, I see the structural problem with MPTV6 as the one that you have at your house, which is you got two different size prefixes. <laughs> Right. So you, you, and you could have a third one for whatever you're running internally, right? You have a 48 that you assign for the site, but you only get a 52 and a 60 from your two different service provider A and B. So you're, you're down to a 60, even though you have a 48 available for your internal site. So you have to be careful of selecting what you want to translate from a prefix basis. You probably go down to 64s and only allow certain portions of your network to actually translate to the outside world if you want to leverage MPTV6, whereas if you use NAT66, you would not care because you can overload, yep. um, which is an unnatural thing to do in V6, I get it, but certainly solves this problem. And when you're in the V6 ops group, you're trying to solve operations problems. This is 100% an operations problem. Um, yeah, and I've brought this up and I've told them, so I've done both of those methodologies that you just mentioned. And mm-hmm. the one that is the most, and I'm, and I'm not advocating, again, I'm not advocating that people do this, but the one that was the most supportable and hands off was that I use my, my, let's say I use my fiber provider as my prefix delegation on the inside. Um, I don't do any static addressing of anything. Everything is slack. And what I do is on the cable modem side, I have a failover so that it's just a, it's just a backup. Right. The fibers, you know, it's symmetric gig. It's what I want to use all the time anyway. But it, just in case it goes down, um, I want my V6 to not break. I don't want to rely on happy eyeballs or anything like that if I don't need to. I want to just seamlessly fail over. That's easy to do in V4. That was like 30 seconds of work. For V6, what I ended up doing was if the primary V6 goes away, I, ne- I don't remember anything. I had played with doing that too, like some automatic switching of the prefixes that get delegated, but that's, you know, clunky and it doesn't work very well because of address selection, but um, it just fails over to a NAT66 to the cable modem side on the, on the um, 
point to point address that I get. And it's only temporary. So, you know, it fails over to that just so it doesn't break, um, you know, anything that I'm currently working on that isn't like an SSH tunnel or something that which is obviously going to break. But and then when it fails back over, it just goes back to normal end to end connectivity. Um, And I've told them that on the mailing list, like this is the only thing that I could even remotely recommend somebody doing. And it's because, not it's not trivial. It's not trivial. It's not something that the CPE manufacturer can just have in there as a click no. box that 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 is set up. You you need to have skill and expertise to be able to do this. Yeah, absolutely. And I I mean I have a you know I have an ISP grade router at my house, right? It'll do BGP. It'll do MPLS. It's it's not just a random piece of CPE. So I also have you know reasonably good equipment at my house to do these things, which most people don't have. Right. Yeah, and I see this as a structural structural challenge for where things are at because you can't address the mid market or those. I need something highly available at our home, or I need a. Even if you're a small business and you just want to have high available internet service, and you can get a cable provider and you can get a, a tethering service or Starlink or something else, and you want to be able to plug both in and just have the network devices work out what's available and how to make things available on the network uh, for you. As an op, you know, as a as a small business operator, you're not going to know the how to do any of that stuff. So there should be a way, and V4 has solved this to a great degree. Yeah. Um, there should be a way to do that to plug you know two service providers into a you know a routing device and have it manage the abstraction to be able to make sure that things are highly available. And there's just not really a, an easy button in that category at all um, no. today. And I think and that's, I think that's, that's that's a major impediment to yes to I think the adoption side to the yep. mid market. Even if you're a big enterprise company, but you have to set up a remote branch office, you know, uh, in a in a smaller rural area, right? And you want to have something more highly available, you're stuck in this exact same position unless you do BGP. And do you want to run BGP? And you know, let's say you're a big you know retail provider, do you want to run BGP in that many site locations? And, you know, well, I mean, that's a cascading cost model, too. Right. Because right. not only are you um, required to buy equipment that'll do BGP, which nowadays you can, you know, BGP is probably the I would argue pro- one of the easiest protocols to make work. It's one of the harder protocols to do right. Yes. But yes, I agree. it's also but it you're, you're it's pretty widely available. It's, it's widely available, but it's also a class up. In equipment, yes. right? So you have mm-hmm. the equipment a, a capital expenditure that's required to actually buy gear that'll do BGP. Then you have your hidden expense, which is you have to hire somebody and ideally more than one somebody that understands how to do BGP at scale like that and manage it and know how to troubleshoot it, right? You can rely on consultancies and things like that. Um, you know, there are lots of good ones out there that'll do it, but it is a cost. Right. And it's an it's a non-trivial cost. Right. Yep. And and at the end of the day, enterprises and SMBs and mid-mark, that it's all driven by cost. Right. It, there needs to be something easy. Right. And this and this certainly doesn't solve the problem for SD-WAN providers either, because SD-WAN providers want to utilize, you know, local internet hop-off to be able to get to Office 365 directly or to get to Salesforce directly, right? Yep. And they built intelligence from an application basis directly into their platform. And they want to have multiple service providers plugged in on the front side and your site plugged in on the back side. And they want to be able to either tunnel the traffic back to your corporate office if that's what's required, or pass it directly to 
a CASB or pass it directly to, you know, whatever, you know, SaaS service that you're going and consuming. And they want highly available internet service, which means they want multiple providers that are providing them access so that they can steer traffic based off of measurement and performance. And they want to be able to switch providers. Maybe it's, you know, everything for Office 65 is going across service provider A and everything for Salesforce is going across service provider B because that's optimized for the traffic flows that you're dealing with. Yeah, so and let's be honest, Nat, 44, Nat 44 solves that problem for them. Uh, it totally solves the problem. So I think there's something to be made there in terms of uh, in terms of arguing through. I think I think what you're doing is super useful because you're just defining the problem space, which is like, hey guys, we don't have really great solutions here. So uh, identifying the gap, which I think is what you're trying to achieve with that draft RFC, is like, hey, you know, the landscape is pretty ugly. Maybe we want to fix the landscape, right? Yep. Um, in terms of what you're talking through. Yeah, that, well, that's cool. that's one of my main goals with that is let's define the landscape so we can see how gross it really is. <laughs> How many dead carcasses are out there? All well, of them. Very cool. They're all out there. <laughs> well, I, I pre, I, I just as, as someone in the community, I really appreciate you spending the time and effort along with all your, your cohorts on, on, on the draft ones, uh, you know, putting in the stuff for the ULA stuff, putting in stuff around the, the multi-home. It's, uh, it's nice to see someone spending the time and effort to, uh, to get that stuff done. So uh, we don't have to is what I was saying. hundred <laughs> percent. I actually, I, 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 I actually, well, I'll get Ed, I'll give you, you're the one that sort of got me to really participate, right? With the original drafts that we wrote, which people can go read, you know, that uh, they're expired at this point, but they're still out there. And I think they're still relevant uh, about address space for building labs and address space for documentation needing some updates. Um, you know, that you got me involved in that. And I am a big, big fan of, the long game. And I like when I can, you know, when I can make a difference with things and I feel like I've been able to do that. And so, you know, my job has allowed me to sort of participate in, in the IETF, you know, to sort of represent the interests of things that, you know, I'm working on in my day job, you know, so I'm, I'm, I'm the implementation lead for um, the Department of Energy's uh, IPv6 transition. So, you know, things that I need to be questions I need to be able to answer and, and, you know, things that I need to be able to, to make reality, th this makes it easier, right? And I, and frankly, I kind of enjoy doing it <laughs> as, as masochistic as that may sound. Well, very cool. I, I have a deep appreciation of, of how much time and effort it takes to do that stuff. Uh, even going through the initial discussions for, for the lab and documentation prefix space, which we probably need to push through again, but, uh, but either way it's, it's, uh, it's a lot of effort. So for folks who just uh, think the, this stuff just magically happens out there, um, <laughs> reach out to Nick. You can find out how much work it really takes to, to make some of this stuff uh, a reality. It's quite, it's quite interesting. Very much a time commitment. Um, yeah. Oh, by the way, I did just publish an update to the ULA draft. Um, oh, cool. It was set to expire. So I made some minor changes to it. Um, you know, ma made some more clarifications that, that I think make some things more obvious. And I'm, I'm probably going to start bringing that up again. As soon as the 64, you know, prefix delegation to the host discussions die down a die, little bit or they make a yeah. call, I'm going to bring it back up. Awesome. That's great. Well, unlike V6, we run out of space for this podcast, but thanks to today's guest, uh, Nick, really appreciate uh, you coming on and giving us the update on, on the ITF side and the things that you're up to. So how, how can folks follow you on the internet? How can they reach out? 
Oh, I'm around. Um, I have I have a Twitter. It's at forwarding plane. I don't really get on Twitter much anymore. I have a Mastodon account that's uh, forwarding plane at dial.modem.show that I look at occasionally. Um, I have a blog that, like most people's, doesn't get very much uh, <laughs> attention anymore. Um, I'm around. I'm pretty cool. fine. You can reach out to the IPv6 Buzz podcast uh, on Twitter at IPv6 Buzz. And you can also hit up the, each one of us on Twitter. Uh, Tom is at IPv6 Tom. Scott is at Scott Hogue. And I'm at E. Horley. Thanks for listening to the IPv6 Buzz. You can find us on the Packet Pushers or any of your podcast apps. Just search for IPv6 Buzz. And if you like the show, really appreciate a rating on iTunes. And if you like this podcast, we really recommend you check out Heavy Networking, Day 2 Cloud, and the Network Break Podcast, plus all the other great technical content over at PacketPushers.net. So long and until next time, we'll see you on the internet. The IPv6 internet, that is. Thanks for listening to IPv6 Buzz, a podcast devoted to truth, justice, and 128 bits of address space. IPv6.